0: Eli, go ahead and make your way over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I don't know if it's appropriate to say that an atmosphere was electric before the age of electricity, but I'm going to use that accommodatively. Because I imagine that's how it was on the day of Pentecost. Think about all of the things going on. The apostles have been waiting They've been somewhat puzzled about when they need to start their work. And the Lord has said, you just wait in Jerusalem and and you'll know. And now they know. They've received the Holy Spirit. And we see one of the byproducts of that is they begin speaking. And all of these people who are from all over are hearing in their own language. And so we've kind of got this reversal of the Tower of Babel. Whereas in Babel, the languages are confused. Now, they're hearing the message of God that's going to unite them and bring them together. And Peter's on his game. Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is presenting a sermon. And he gives a summation of what's gone on. What the Old Testament was emphasizing. And then he comes to a very important point where he looks at his audience and he says, you're the ones who killed the Son of God. That could have gone very wrongly, couldn't it? (laughs) That could have gone, as it will, a little bit later on with with Stephen. But yet, at this point, the men turn to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And I know you know this verse, but I want us to read it together. You look here in Acts chapter 2 as they're asking this question. Here's the answer, verse 38 Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very simple answer. God says it's time to turn, it's time to put away this wickedness, it's time to cross the waters of baptism. And you're going to receive salvation. And with great excitement, we find that the people listen to that. And we find that many of them are baptized after this. Peter gives them the message here. And we look at verse 41, and it says, So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You ever imagine what that was like? 3,000 people being baptized? Now I was at a baptism once, and I think there were 20 or 25, and it was an amazing event, and I can only imagine what it was like. Every pool, every puddle of water that could hold a person in Jerusalem was likely employed. And that message continues on, and Luke, as he's kind of wrapping this up, down in verse 47, he says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day, Those who were being saved. So it wasn't a one and done. You had people who continued to hear the gospel, who continued to respond to the gospel. The Lord's adding them to the body of the saved. And I bring all of that out to you to share a a thought that I've had. And it's an unanswerable thought, but nonetheless it's interesting to ponder. Of all of the thousands of people who were baptized, how did Luke choose whose stories to tell? Now the easy answer to that, of course, is he's being guided by the Lord. The Holy Spirit's directing him in that. But I believe Luke would have had uh, some hand in that, of course, as the writer. And you think about these very few, just handful of conversion accounts that are going to be given. They're very fascinating, very interesting. And I think one of the reasons that we might can say that Luke chose the ones that he did is because what they're doing is they're showing us a very different group of people who are coming to the Lord, but yet being united in Him. Men, women, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, as we'll see tonight. And so as we put all of these accounts together, we're seeing That there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Yet the way that Luke records these is interesting because I'm more and more convinced that at least in some of these, he's lining up things for us to make a comparison. And so tonight, and Lord willing, tomorrow night, we're going to look at some of these conversion accounts. We're going to talk about one man in particular tonight, two people tomorrow night. And what I want us to see in this is how Luke is telling their story. Because what it's going to do is is tie in with what we're using as kind of this loose theme for the week of choice that you've got to make. Here are people who are hearing the word of God, they're making a choice about it, and then we're going to see a choice in addition to that that's made tonight that's very troublesome. So all of this is going on. We make our way now over to Acts chapter 8, and while that excitement of the the day of Pentecost and all these people who are becoming Christians, by the time we get to chapter 8, things are are getting a little difficult here. This great movement has got a lot of people worried. The religious leaders of the Jews are worried. This sect of Christ is growing. And so we come then to chapter 8, and down in verse 1, it says, There arose on that day... A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what we might think is kind of bad news in all of this. Here are these people, they're new in the faith, they're, they're receiving persecution, they're being run out of their homes because of their beliefs. Yet, when we continue reading, We find that verse two, Stephen has just been martyred, he's buried. Verse three, Saul's raging against the church. But then we come to verse four, and it says, Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You ever tried to put out a fire with your foot? I don't recommend it, so don't go home and try it because I said. But if you're male, I know you have, and maybe some ladies too have tried this. And you got this fire going, and maybe you've had a, a bunch of brush, you're burning, and it's the end of the day, you're ready for that fire to go out. And so you don't go get the water hose, do you? That would make too much sense. You start. And usually what happens? Well, where you had one fire, now you've got Ten. All those little embers have taken flight and they've landed in all these different places. That's exactly what's going on here. You've got the devil who's employed some of his human cohorts here and they're trying to stamp out Christianity, persecuting, punishing, killing. And yet it seems the more they're trying to do all of this, the more it's spreading. And these people who are having to to get out of their homes, they're taking their faith with them. They're not scared. They're talking to everybody about it. And so the gospel now is beginning to spread out from the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to find in this chapter that Philip is going to go down to the city of Samaria and he's going to begin to preach we think about Samaria and its place in the Bible story, it doesn't hold a very positive marker in the Bible, does it? Here was the city where those northern kings would exercise their wickedness and a lot of evil going on, but yet here now the gospel of Jesus Christ is coming in. And as Luke records this for us, what he's going to do is to set up a contrast. One of those he's contrasting is the preacher, Philip. And the other that he's contrasting is going to be one of the men who listens to Philip, this sorcerer who had been really dazzling the people with all the things that he could supposedly do. And so what I'd like to do in our our study tonight is to spend a few minutes looking at how Luke tells their story. And then what I want us to do is to take that and think about what Luke is telling us as we think about our relationship to the gospel of Jesus. So let's contrast these two men. Here's Philip. We know that he's a great man. We know that he's a godly man. He's going down. He's spreading the word to these uh, these people of Samaria. And as... Luke begins to draw this contrast, I just want us to note right off the bat what's spoken about what these two men are saying. And so we find that Philip went down to the city of Samaria, verse 5 tells us, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, as we read about what Simon is doing, it says that there was a man named Simon, and verse 9 says that he said about himself that he was somebody great. You ever paid a lot of attention to that when you've been reading this account? You talk about someone who is a self-promoter. That's what Luke's telling us about Simon here. Here is Simon, who has obviously made his livelihood over creating this image about himself. And so Luke is saying, let me show you these two men. You've got one, this really good man, who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's godly, and he's sincere, and he's wanting to save. And he's proclaiming the Lord Jesus to them. And you've got this other guy, and he's proclaiming himself. Luke also goes on to say, we can contrast in a sense, the way the people of Samaria are reacting to the two. And so as Philip begins to preach the message of salvation, we're told in verse 6 that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they saw and heard the signs that he did. Now, if you follow closely in the text... Luke is going to begin employing the same word in several places. Here's one of those. So as he's telling us about Simon, he says, they all paid attention to Simon. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now I want you to note, same way of describing the message. The people paid attention to Philip. The people paid attention to Simon. And I don't know what Simon was saying about himself, I don't know what he was doing, but in some way, he's got the people convinced that he is a prophet, or he's a, he's a sorcerer of some kind with the power of God, and it seems what's happening here is he's merged this idea of kind of pagan black magic with, with trying to look like a spiritual man, and he's gotten a following, a pretty big one, they're paying attention to him. Well, let's continue that contrast. Because Luke then says, I want to tell you what they're doing. And so he tells us about Philip, what he does as he goes into the city. Picking up where we were, it says the crowd paid attention uh, to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And so Luke's going to record these signs for us. For unclean spirits. Crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so, as as Philip is preaching his message here, God has given him the power as proof that the message is true. And here are things that are irrefutable. Here are things that people have seen. And so, it's, it's an odd thing to even consider demon possession. I, it's just hard to wrap your mind around it. But yet what we know from all the accounts that the text gives us is that you were very aware when somebody had a demon. It changed their behavior, changed their personality. And so here were people, and you can imagine maybe the folks in Samaria just kind of steered clear of them, they're scared of them. Or they knew that they had some kind of oddity about them because of this. And Philip comes and in the name of Jesus he calls that spirit out and the person's normal again, it's gone. And here's someone who maybe you've passed on the street every day. Maybe someone who's begging for, for money or for help in some way. And there's no doubt that this person is an invalid whatsoever. And Philip comes and he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And that person walks. And so you've got these great demonstrations of power. And so as Luke then draws the contrast, he tells us all this about Philip, but then notice what he says about Simon. He says they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And that's the end of the discussion. (laughs) We we might like to have some information about this, but Luke says he's basically trying to trick them. He's employing all these things, trying to deceive them. So, different men and what they're proclaiming. One proclaiming Christ, one proclaiming self. Both getting attention from the people, but for very different reasons. Because one man has a message with works to back it up, and the other man is just seeking to get a following. But then let's add one more to this. And that's the decision that the people make as a result of these two men. Luke says they paid attention to Simon. Simon. Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were both they were baptized both men and women. Both getting attention both messages being heard but the people are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're being baptized. Now Let's uh, let's think about something that these two men do have in common both of them are providing an appeal to the supernatural ever thought about that before Both Philip and Simon are appealing to something that goes beyond human reasoning. You've got Simon, who's trying to convince everybody he's this great guy from the great power of God. And you've got Philip, who's also appealing to the people to believe in the Savior who was on earth, but he was crucified and resurrected and ascended to heaven. That tells us something about humanity. God has created us, I am convinced, with a sense that there's something bigger than ourselves. Something greater than ourselves. And I think the book of Ecclesiastes helps us with that a bit. As a writer of Ecclesiastes would say, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart. Now, you put that in its context in Ecclesiastes, and it's being used to to show us kind of a troublesome idea that we have, but yet the truth is there, that all of us as humans know that we're a part of something bigger. And both of these men are making an appeal to that idea, and so the crowds then have got to decide what they're going to do with that, and as we've already seen, they make that decision. And so on the one hand, you've got Simon, who at the very best, the very best we could say about him, is that he's appealing to some kind of smoke and mirrors trickery. That like a magician, that's what he's trying to do. I don't know if you've ever watched a professional magician before. Sometimes you'll see a a talent show on TV or something, and they'll have a magician And you sit there and you almost think, maybe he is magic, right? Maybe he is. Because there are some people so good at deceiving us that we'll pay them to be deceived. (laughs) You ever thought about that? We'll pay somebody to trick us into thinking that something's there. That could have been Simon. At the very worst, he's employing some kind of black magic here. That he's calling on some kind of, of demonic... Some kind of supernatural strength. I don't know which it is. Luke doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that is set in stark contrast to what Philip is saying. You see, Philip is not a self-promoter. He's a Jesus promoter. And so he comes to them with a message and he says, I have got great news for you. The kingdom of God is now opening up its doors to Samaria you're welcome to come in. You're welcome to be a part of this great kingdom, but it's not because of me. He says it's in the name, by the authority of Jesus Christ, that you can become a part of this. And so, what happens? Well, Philip provides the better message. As both men are appealing to something quite supernatural, Philip is giving them something that can be proven in the sense that he has got this message that's verified. There's people who walked with Jesus. There's people who saw him die. There are people still alive who saw him resurrected from the dead. And when they hear that, the Samaritans were baptized. And we don't need to miss verse 8. It says there was much joy in that city. That's one of Luke's big themes. (laughs) You read the gospel of Luke and there's just joyful people all over the place. And here he's continuing that in the second volume of his work and he says when these people came there was great great joy. Okay so that's kind of the the setup of what we've got here. And then as we continue on in the text we're going to come to this point where we're going to see salvation and temptation coming into the story. Because quite surprisingly, if you were reading this for the first time, I think this would be kind of shocking, we find out that even Simon is converted. So here's this guy who for years has been making his living deceiving people, trying to make a name for himself to be somebody great, and he sees all this going on. I want us just to look in verse 13 together where it says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. There is no doubt that Simon, this former pagan, whatever he was doing and employing this, was now a part of the family of God. The exact same thing that was said about Simon is what was said about the other people of Samaria. They believed they were baptized. I'm making a point of that because we'll be back to it here in a little while. But yet then we read that Simon's continuing to hang around with Philip. And Philip is, we've already mentioned, doing these great works. We're about to see the apostles come. They're going to do great works. And what this is doing is it's showing that God's authority is with them. You know, when you can take someone who everybody knows is deaf or blind or lame or demon-possessed, and you speak to them in the authority of Jesus Christ, and you say, be healed, that's going to make an impression on folks. As we well know, they couldn't open their New Testaments up and show the written word quite yet. It was still in the works. And so Simon's watching all of this. And what he's seeing is something that's going to be quite amazing when the apostles come down. We'll talk about that here in in just a minute. But we're going to see that these signs are going to accompany the spreading border of the kingdom. Now, this wasn't exclusively to these times. But yet, what do these three situations have in common when the Jews receive salvation, when the people of Samaria receive salvation, when the Gentiles receive salvation? God allows the signs of the Spirit to be present there. And it's saying, this is what I intend, this is from me, this is a big deal. And so Simon is just watching all of this. He's watching what Philip does, and it, it's captured his attention. Now, here's a point where we again need to note Luke doing something for us. Okay, so, so Luke's lining a couple of things up. Let, rem- let me remind you of what we looked at a minute ago. It says, Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now that word needs to ring a bell. Because what Luke has already told us is this, is that when the people of Samaria paid attention to what Simon had done, he had amazed them with his magic. Okay, so Luke's getting the set up for this. They had been amazed... Now Simon himself is amazed by what's going on. We're going to come to a point now in the story where the apostles come down, Peter and John in particular, they come down to Samaria for the express purpose of laying on their hands of some of these individuals to impart the Holy Spirit to them. And so as Simon is watching all of this, he's going to make a very... Terrible request. Let's look at it. Down in verse 18. Just previous to this. Verse 17. Talking about the apostles. They laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. It says now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given. Through the laying on of the apostles hands. He offered the money. Saying. Give me this power also. So that anyone on whom I lay my hand may receive the Holy Spirit. So he's been watching Philip, and now he's been watching Peter and John, and he says, I would really like to do what you do. I tell you what, I'll buy a franchise. (laughs) You, You sell me that ability so that I can lay my hands on people, and the arrogance of all of this is, is that he is seeking to buy control of God. Like I said, I don't know where Simon thought his power was coming from, but a lot of times when you start getting into paganism, you you start thinking about all these myths associated with it, a lot of times it's based on the fact that you're controlling some spiritual being, and maybe that's where, where Simon's coming from. That he's thinking, if I can just buy this, if I can have my own control, then I'm going to be able to do what they do. That was a bad request. And he knew it almost immediately. Because look in verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither Part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And they're just getting started. What Peter is saying is this you have insulted the Lord. And after he says, there is no way silver and gold is going to take this, let's see what he tells him in verse 22 as far as what he needs to do. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. On my outline here, I've got a little thing in parentheses that says Peter went full Old Testament prophet on Simon. These are the kinds of words that you can kind of imagine Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah speaking, because it is with righteous vigor that they are saying this is, that he's saying this is not the way that it needs to be. And so he says, Look, you got to repent. Now remember what we needed to tuck back a few minutes ago? All right, we're back to it now. What Peter did not say is, Simon, you need to become a Christian. Nor did he say, Simon, you thought you were a Christian, but now you need to become one for real. Simon was a Christian. Simon had believed and was baptized. And yet, what he's done is he's gone back into the ways of sin, and what Peter is saying is, you better ask the Lord to forgive you. You better ask for repentance here. And you go on down to the next verse and you see what Peter says about him. He says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, that gall of bitterness kind of throws us a little bit because we know that he's tried to buy the power of God. He sought to control God. He sought an improper use of God's power. But we've not really read much about bitterness. So Peter's kind of cueing us in on something here. And so here we have this gall, this this herb that would be associated with bitterness. And so, you know, Peter's kind of saying to Simon, you're pickled in this. You're pickled in bitterness. What was he bitter about? What was he bitter about? Well, he did lose his livelihood, didn't he? That's gone. The great crowds, amazing the people, that's all history. And it appears that what Luke is sharing with us here is that Peter is saying, your motive here is very wrong. You you feel like you've lost something. And then he goes on to say, you need to repent because you have bonded back with iniquity. This was not a weak Christian. Just made maybe a rookie mistake. It's not it at all. This is a man who Peter is saying has returned back to the side of wickedness. That's gone back to the ways of evil. And he says in verse 22, perhaps God will forgive you. That's very much like the Old Testament prophets. Two or three times they'll say something like that. Repent and maybe God will forgive you of this. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, "I, I can't tell you for sure. Perhaps God will. You ever tried to imagine the look on Simon's face? I suspect Simon was thinking more of a negotiation thing, don't you? He would offer, Peter would counter, he would counter. Finally, they'd come up with a price for all of this. But instead, he gets this powerful rebuke from the mouth of the Lord's most outspoken apostle. And so it's no surprise then that after all of this, that that he's realizing, I'm just... <laughs> I'm not just involved in some little thing here. I've returned to the enemy camp. And I think he got that. Because the next thing we find is that he's begging for forgiveness. Look at verse 24. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord. Peter said to him, Repent, pray to God. He says, You pray for me that the Lord will do nothing of what you have said That may come upon me. He's terrified. Pray that these things won't happen. Pray for my forgiveness. And so we we built to this great climax. And here there's been this showdown between Peter and Simon. And so what happens? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. (laughs) We read the next verse. It says, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You ever notice there's places where God does that throughout the Bible? He'll kind of build us up, build us up, let the story build, get tense, and then you kind of hit the crescendo and it's like, off to something else. Well, there's a reason for it. Those are times when God is wanting you to sit back in your chair and do some major thinking about what just happened. That a man who knew the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ could try to buy that power to hear the rebuke of the apostle, to understand that he needs to seek forgiveness, which he does. And as we ponder those things, if you're like me, likely the thought that comes to your mind is this. Well, God does love to forgive people. That's something he wants to do. And maybe one of these days, we'll be able to talk to Simon about all of this. But nonetheless, what, what Luke has done in telling us this story is first of all contrasted Philip and Simon, and then almost as contrast between Peter and Simon, but what he's ultimately done is he said, you better think seriously about your spirituality. When you make the choice to become a Christian, you need to think about that. <clears throat> so let's ponder that for the last few minutes of our study here. As we read this very interesting, intriguing account, what exactly is it that I need to see? Well, one of the things that I very much need to see is the power of the gospel message. That's what we see with the Samaritans here. They saw the gospel superiority over these things and they accepted it with joy. And we'll find a a writing by the Apostle Paul that certainly applies to this. When he wrote to the Romans and he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of Jesus. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, the power of the gospel must be seen. And I make that point to us Because we are living in a culture that is seeking to diminish that idea. A culture that I don't know that we could ever describe as Christian. I think that would be going overboard. But a culture that was at least neutral and at best maybe promoting certain things to a culture that now is seeking to diminish those things. And so there's going to be a great temptation, and perhaps a greater temptation in days in years to come, that we will seek to blend in, that'll we'll seek not to draw attention to our beliefs, that will seek to diminish the power of the gospel. And we've got to be very careful about that. If you've noticed statistics that are taken, and these, these are a broad range here. What we see is that in 1990, about 90% of Americans profess some kind of Christianity. In our current times, that's dropped to just above 60%. So, fairly significant downplay. But here's something interesting that's happened as of late. We've seen a rise in those practicing the occult. Does that surprise us? shouldn't. So in other words, you've got people now who are getting really, really interested in Wiccan and witchcraft and crystals and all this kind of stuff. Why should that not surprise us? Well, it's because we've got eternity in our hearts. We know there's something bigger out there. And so, you're seeing people who are giving claims to that. Why? Because the power of the gospel has been diminished in their lives. And I want to draw this point specifically to our younger crowd. Those of you who are junior high, high school, college age. I want you to really think about the point I'm making to you. There's a lot of sermons, a lot of Bible classes that are going to encourage you to develop your own faith. And that's that's good. You're going to hear statements like, well, you can't accept your parents' faith, you can't accept your church's faith, it's got to be yours, and that's absolutely right. But I don't want you to ever, ever think that somebody's telling you maybe there's something better than the gospel out there. Because if you line the gospel up with any occult, with any false religion, with any paganism, and you give it a fair shake, the gospel is going to win. Because it is the power of God to salvation. And I don't want you to ever forget that because your faith is going to be put to a test. When you go off to a university... There are going to be people there who have no concept of Christianity and they're not going to appreciate yours either. And you've got to stand firm. And I tell you, in my years of working with kids going from high school to college, I see way too many of them who give up really easily on the gospel. Don't do that. But let me also make this point. That spirituality has also got to be nourished. Now, we understand that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's what every one of these conversion stories point out. The two things they all have in common, they heard, they were baptized. But what I also want to make sure we understand tonight is that nourishing salvation is also necessary That if we are going to stay saved, we've got to nourish that salvation. Now, let's make a point here. That when we become Christians, this is not simply an act that we go through. This is a change of life. It's saying that we are killing off and burying that old man of sin, and we're going to have nothing else to do with him. We're new. And so our attitudes and our actions have got to reflect that. That's the nourishing part. We're thinking, what must I do to be like Jesus Christ? What must I do to grow in my faith? That's what we're looking at with this. And I want us to see from this account that salvation can be lost. Now, I made kind of a big deal out of that earlier in anticipation of this point. There is a major, major false doctrine. That says, once you become a Christian, there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to lose that salvation. You are saved forever. And of course, the account that we've looked at this evening, it's kind of difficult to believe that, isn't it? Because here's Peter saying, you better repent. Because you're in the gall of bitterness and you're bonded to iniquity. And you better pray that maybe God will forgive you. And what oftentimes happens is someone says, well, yes, but Simon was never really converted. Uh, If he wasn't converted, that means none of the people of Samaria were converted. Because it says they believed and were baptized, and it says he believed and was baptized. Same language. No, we can lose it. We can lose that salvation. And so when I become a Christian, I want to understand that I have entered into a family relationship with God. I'm in His kingdom. He's molding. He's making me to become a child of His. And I've got to be serious about that. And I've got to put away those things that would be contrary to Jesus Christ. And so the moral from this angle that we want to get from this account is, is that Simon is showing us the danger of turning your mind away from God. You know, he had kind of played around with this, it seems, for a long time, and he's still trying to do it, but he's in a different relationship now. And that's why he gets that rebuke. But I also want to give the other side of this. That as we think about Simon, and we think about, as we mentioned, Peter's calling to repent, the serious nature of this. I want us to also understand that God is going to help his faithful to stay safe. Maybe we've emphasized point number one much more than we've emphasized this point. Lots of sermons that you can sin. Lots of sermons that you can lose your salvation. Lots of sermons on once you're saved, you're always saved in the fallacy of that. We need to make sure that we're also teaching about the patience of God. And the kindness of God. And the grace of God. And the mercy of God. Because if you ever get this concept in your mind, that you're kind of walking through this minefield totally without help, without guidance, I don't know that anybody will stay safe. Because you're going to begin thinking, this is insurmountable, I just can't do it. And that's why God has given us things like the peace that passes understanding. Of knowing that He's there. That He dwells within us. That that He dwells with us. And I think one other thing He's done is He's shown us a whole lot of people who had a whole lot of trouble. (laughs) You start looking through the Bible. How many great people do you see? How many people do you just see who are getting everything exactly right? Was it Noah? Noah? Was it Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Was it Moses? Did they just get everything right? They just got all this figured out perfectly? Was it David, the man after God's own heart, who took a man's wife and murdered him? Was it Peter, who denied his Lord three times? You see, God has said, I I got you, I understand who you are. Understand what's going on in the human mind. That's not an excuse, but he says, if you'll stick with me, I'll help you through this. And it may call for times of repentance, and it will. But it's also going to call for times to realize that God wants to save me. God wants me with Him. That's an amazing thought. That God cares anything about me. But to the extent that He knows me by name, He knows what's going on in my life, He knows what's going on in my mind, He knows the struggles I'm facing, He knows the temptations, and He says, if you'll stick with me, I'll prepare a way for you. And while we are serious about sin, and we don't ever want to give an inch toward sin, we also realize that God is there as the great comforter, Who is going to help us to find our way to Him. God wants to save us. So we put all this together. And what we find is this picture of salvation. And what worked on the day of Pentecost worked in Samaria. And what saved the people of Samaria saved Simon the sorcerer. And what saved Lydia... And the Philippian jailer, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, is what saves us today. And that is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. You see, none of us deserve it. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if it were not for His grace and His mercy, we'd have no reason to even continue, would we? What a terrible thought. But yet God says, I am so interested in this grand partnership that I laid out on the first page of the Bible. but I'll let my Son become flesh and live among you and be killed by you so that His blood can cleanse you. That's how much God wants us to be saved. And He says, the way that you find My grace is when you trust Me. You trust. And what I've said to you is that you bring your broken life to Me And when you pass through those waters of baptism, as I said, the children of Israel, when they passed through the Red Sea, and as I brought the children of Israel into the promised land when they went through the Jordan, He says, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. We're going to kill off that old sinful person. And we're going to start all over with a recreated person who's not only made in my image, but remade in the image of my Son. And the baptism that was taught in the first century is the same baptism that's taught in the 21st century. And we can be a part of the family of God. So if you're grappling with that choice tonight, I hope you'll let this section of the book of Acts help you with that. Because here's the decision. Am I going to accept that salvation of Jesus Christ? But let me also say this. What we also learn in this section is that Christians can sin. And maybe that's the case with you. Maybe there is a sin in your life right now that needs to be taken care of. Now let me tell you this. This church can't forgive you. The only way this church can forgive you is if you've committed some sin against them. But this church is quite ready to go with you to the throne room of heaven so that the one who can forgive you Can be implored by all of us. And I know that every Christian in this room. Is ready and willing and wanting to do that. Let's take our salvation seriously. Let's let the power of the gospel work in our lives. You need to respond to his invitation. You can come now as we stand and sing together.